Hi. Welcome to Fizzgig. I'm Wendy Althwaite, and I admit to being fascinated by fizz. The taste, the tingle, and most importantly, the trivia. Do join me. We'll explore the myths and the mysteries of the world's greatest sparkling wines. Full disclosure here, I produce English sparkling wine in West Sussex myself, but this podcast is not about our wine in particular, or even about English sparkling wine in general. It's about the scintillating world of effervescence. I'll pop a cork and cast a pod every Friday, and I do hope you'll be with me. Don't forget to listen out for the pudding at the end. It's a little tidbit that, whilst not strictly on point, amuses me. Pop it in your goodie bag as a little fact to take away. So here we go. TGI Fizz Day. And today, we're looking through a glass sparkly at glassware. There's no better tracker of trends or tastes than glassware. At first, fizz was drunk in the usual glassware of the time, an inverted trumpet-shaped glass. Although even then, coupes were already beginning to appear in the 17th century. And so the whole flute-coupe dilemma has been present from the start. So our main question is, is it sparkling wine or sparkling wine? The choice determines the glassware. Let me explain. Fizz is for celebrating. It's great for a party, the energy of the eruption, the fun of the fizz, the tickling of the nose and the palate. And you'll remember from last week that there are approximately 49 million bubbles in a bottle of fizz. Most of them pop on opening, so each glass only holds about a million bubbles. In the early days, there was a hangover perception that bubbles were a wine fault. Even when in the 17th century effervescence was embraced, nevertheless, bubbles in wine were eyed suspiciously and thought of as frivolous, or worse, unrefined. A serious enophile would have to shun them. An aggressive perlage was simply uncouth. But of course, that's precisely why people loved it. It was for the spontaneous joy, the irrepressible fun, the instant gratification. What mattered to them was the sparkle, not the wine. There was a forget-your-troubles-with-bubbles attitude, as people turned away from the stuffiness of wine and just enjoyed the wine stuff. So let's get down to the nitty-gritty. We've already looked at how sparkling wine was traditionally made, having a little sugar added at bottling to feed the yeast during secondary fermentation in the bottle. When the yeast had done its job, it died and settled to the bottom of the bottle. This is called the bottle lees, and it's amazing. It's the wine's long contact with the bottle lees that gives the wine its delicious, toasty, brioche, nutty characteristics, often referred to as autolytic flavours. Auto, self, lysis, breakdown. As the dead yeast cells decompose, they interact with the wine in a way that's nothing short of miraculous. These characteristics are the hallmarks of an excellent sparkling wine. So dead yeast cells are highly desirable in the bottle, but less so in the glass. Instead of clear, brilliant wine, it would be cloudy, and the grit of dead yeast 
would lodge between your teeth. Not nice. To get around this, wine producers would open a bottle of champagne, thereby damaging the wine with the agitation, losing bubbles and losing a lot of wine in the process, and pour it into another bottle to discard the bottle lees. If it wasn't done properly, the wine would be gritty, cloudy and would turn sour. Even if done perfectly, about 48 million bubbles would be lost. Alternatively, the consumer could take the bottle and decant it, again to get rid of the bottle lees which would sink in time to the bottom of the decanter like any other sediment. Again, most of the bubbles would be lost. People even used to micro-decant. Champagne coupes were made with hollow stems so that if you waited long enough, the offending grit would be trapped in the stem of the glass. And as long as you didn't drain your glass, it was probably all right. But all that waiting left both the drinker and the wine feeling flat. Time to introduce Madame Clicquot of Verve Clicquot fame. We'll come back to her in another podcast because she's a bit of a fizz hero. Brought up in post-revolutionary France, her husband died unexpectedly when he was 30 and she was 27. French women were not allowed to conduct business at that time, but there was, fortunately, an exception for widows. In time, she became a grande dame of Champagne, largely because she was a sanctioned, busting badass who completely changed the way Champagne was made. In the early 1800s, Verve Clicquot realised that if you gently turned a bottle over a long time, you could get all the bottle lees in the neck. She's reputed to have hacked holes in her dining room table to make it into a rack, propped it up against a wall, placed a bottle in each of the holes and turned it a quarter turn every day for six to eight weeks until the lees was in the neck of the bottle. The bottleneck was then frozen the wine opened so that the frozen plug that had captured the gritty yeast flew out under the pressure of the bubbles, leaving crystal clear bubbly wine. Genius. This method of riddling and disgorging meant not only that Verve Clicquot improved the quality of her wine, but also that she could finish it faster than her competitors, which meant that she could pip them to the post on exports. And that's exactly what she did. Ignoring trade sanctions, she got her fizz to St. Petersburg just as Napoleon was defeated and the Russians were in the mood to celebrate with champagne, which they knew simply as the widow. What a woman. But back to glassware, in time for a coup, or rather a coupe. The champagne saucer, or coupe, became the favoured glass shape for champagne by the end of the 19th century. It was the height of fashion in the 1930s. The myth that it was moulded on the breast of Marie Antoinette, or indeed her rival, Madame du Barry, is completely without foundation. It's just titivating tittle-tattle. Not least because the coupe was present in England in 1663, almost a century before either of these ladies were even born. It'll never really go out of fashion. Kate Moss recently modelled her breast into a coupe, it perhaps reflected the ongoing suspicion that bubbles might still be a fault. The champagne saucer is a wide-mouthed flat glass which also encourages the bubbles to dissipate quickly. 
Champagne used to be a lot sweeter than it is now, a sort of historic alcopop, and the lack of bubbles made it taste all the sweeter. But not only did the coupe reduce effervescence, it also reduced aromas and flavours. As the bubbles burst, so did the taste, so it was not really suited for the appreciation of fine wine. It is the ultimate party glass, though. It's the only thing to build a champagne fountain, and no doubt drinkers were encouraged to finish the glass before it went flat, and so drank more quickly and moorishly. The anti-bubble sentiment was taken a step even further with the swizzle stick. The essential 1930s fashion accessory caused quite a stir. A brisk whisk with one of these would defroth the fizz and render it as flat as a flapper's frontage. Fizzle guaranteed. Over time, when people preferred more brute styles of sparkling wine, they also wanted to keep the bubbles. After all, what's the point of flat fizz? It takes the winemaker years to get the bubbles there, and if you want still wine, why not just buy still wine? The coupe was gradually abandoned for the magic of the flute. The iconic champagne flute is a slender stemmed glass which preserves and directs the precious bubbles and aromas to the nose through its narrow mouth. Nothing keeps fizz like a flute. Once effervescence became celebrated, not shunned, flute sales soared. Some flute makers deliberately made a rough spot in the bottom of the glass to collect bubbles and guide them upwards in a single stream, the renowned string of pearls. And the narrow glass preserved the bubbles in a corona around its edge. It was nothing short of performance art. But you can't stick your snozzle in a flute to sniff. So can you really appreciate the wine? So I go back to the question. Is it sparkling wine or sparkling wine? Over the last decade, sommeliers have increasingly suggested that sparkling wine should be treated like, well, wine, and drunk from a white wine glass. It's a pitch for sparkling wines to be taken more seriously. Sparkling wine should not just be sprayed by racing drivers, smashed into ships, subjected to sabrage, or sipped as an aperitif before progressing to the proper wines. Sparkling wines are proper wines, and the way we drink them determines whether we can appreciate them fully. White wine glasses, particularly tulip glasses with their fuller belly, allow greater air contact with the fizz than a flute. This allows the aromas to develop beautifully in the wine because of the aeration, and the narrow neck retains bubbliness. So arguably, it's the best of both worlds, flavour and froth. So, might we recant to decanting? Historically, Parisian sommeliers would decant demi-sec champagnes to reduce the bubbles and enhance the sweetness. They noticed that decanting a sparkling wine tamed any aggressive fizz and softened the mousse, as well as allowing subtle aromas to develop with aeration. Even a young, non-vintage sparkling wine was transformed into something delicious, fine-beaded, soft and multi-layered. In short, a decanted sparkling wine 
evolved with the characteristics of a fine wine that had been aged longer both on the lees and post-disgorgement. But even a vintage wine could be improved by decanting, as long as it was drunk within an hour or so. By the way, don't bother with a spoon, silver or otherwise, to try and preserve bubbles, either in a decanter or in a bottle. It doesn't work. In fact, it may even help bubbles dissipate more quickly. If you don't have a stopper, just leave the bottle alone. It'll stay effervescent for a while if you keep it cold. The point is, decanting is short on showmanship. A slow pour from a decanter of wine that has popped its cork an hour earlier appeals principally to the wine buff. I can't see it taking off in Formula One. Part of the froth-filled fun of fizz surely involves an opening ceremony and the risk of a spectacular spurt. Which brings us to shoes. I know that this podcast is about glassware, but there's a tradition, which has had a recent resurgence, of drinking fizz from footwear. Originally, this bizarre tradition brought good luck, and apparently this dates back to the Middle Ages. Before battle, some kind of alcohol would be drunk from a military commander's boot for good luck, and it was also done to celebrate victories. A Prussian general promised his soldiers that if they were victorious, he'd drink his own boot full of beer. Following their victory, he decided to have a glass boot substitute made. Glass boots continue to amuse tourists in Germany during the beer fests. By the way, this has no association with the phrase putting on your drinking boots. This comes from Ireland and it may refer to your actual recreational footwear or to getting into the mindset for a drinking binge. As far as I know, no one has ever worn their drinking boots and their thinking caps at the same time. Fizz has always had a bit of a racy image and legend has it that another Prussian, Prince Henry, was at the Everly Club in Chicago in 1902 when a dancer's slipper flew off. He retrieved it, filled it with champagne and drank it. His companions quickly de-slippered the other girls and did the same. The idea caught on in a big way in the USA. Tallulah Bankhead was photographed sipping from a slipper at the Ritz in 1951 and many shoe designers and champagne houses have now collaborated to produce limited edition champagne slippers. Please be aware though that the term champagne slipper refers to a particular sexual act so it's not a term to bandy about in public. But change is afoot. Racing drivers now celebrate a win with a shoey. Sometimes it's champagne, sometimes it's beer. It's almost always a little messy. Anyone for pudding? You may have wondered why our jingle is Pop Goes the Weasel. Obviously it pops like a cork. But Pop Goes the Weasel is contemporaneous with Champagne's boom in popularity. It was the big dance hit of the early 1800s in Georgian England. And there are many different versions and many theories about exactly what the lyrics mean. Half a pound of tuppenny rice, half a pound of treacle. That's the way the money goes. Pop goes the weasel. Up and down the city road, in and out the eagle. That's the way the money goes. Pop goes the weasel. 
seems to have come out of the East End of London. The Eagle refers to the Eagle Tavern on the corner of City Road and Shepherdess Walk. The East End is, of course, the home of Cockney rhyming slang. Pop means to pawn your goods for money. And a weasel is a weasel and stoat, meaning coat. At the time, clothing was very expensive. So popping your weasel is the practice of pawning your coat in exchange for money, usually to buy a drink, perhaps at the Eagle Tavern. Typically, you do it at the start of the week so that after payday, you could get your Sunday best back in time for church. It seems only right for a podcast on sparkling wine to adopt a tune that relates to spending too much money on drink. So there we have it, aficionados. That brings our drinks trolley to the end of the road. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me next Friday for the fizz that launched a thousand ships. Whatever sort of glass you use, may your wine, like your wit, be sparkling. Chin chin.